This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Let's listen to these words together. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. The Philistines have assembled all their forces, a massive army, and they've swung way up to the north and they're facing off against Saul and his forces on the flat plains of the Jezreel Valley the flat plains where the Philistines have a massive technological advantage and with their iron chariots, they crush the Israelite armies, army under their wheels. And the front lines collapse and the surviving Israelite soldiers run for their lives to the comparative safety of the hills of Mount Gilboa. And Saul and his sons are unable to slip away in the mountains and they turn and they make a desperate last stand against the pagan hordes along with their few surviving warriors. And in the briefest of notices, our narrator tells us that one after another, Saul's three sons are killed, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. And there's so much tragedy In that verse. Because Jonathan, the crown prince, surely would have been one of the greatest of the kings of Israel. 
And especially when you read the long, sorry story of the kings of Israel and Judah. You could only wish for a man like Jonathan to sit on the throne. A powerful warrior. A man filled with faith in the living God. But Jonathan, the heir to the throne, he recognized that it was David, not Jonathan, who was the anointed of God. And yet Jonathan has the nobility of heart not only to accept that God has placed him to the side, but even to embrace that. When Jonathan meets David and recognizes the spirit upon David, incredibly, there was no bitterness in Jonathan's heart. In fact, all the goodness within him rises in love and admiration and loyalty to David. David, a man whom Jonathan's own father is bent on destroying. But Jonathan is so selfless, so committed to the ways of God, so committed to the one that God has chosen that Jonathan encourages David to stay strong in faith, to remember God's promises to him. And to look forward to the day when David reigns and Jonathan, his brother-in-law, his best friend, will be there beside him, strengthening his hand in God. Jonathan is a loyal friend, but he's also a faithful son to Saul. A difficult pair of loyalties and loves to balance and Jonathan is not blind to the faults of his fathers of his father he sees how Saul is degenerating into paranoia and evil even and yet Jonathan is loyal to the end he knows he's not called to follow David into the wilderness Jonathan if anything has a more difficult path at the side of his increasingly deranged father. Jonathan's dream is to support David in his reign, but that dream is not to be because Jonathan falls in battle, fighting alongside his doomed father. And we would all like to imagine that we can limit the fallout of our sin only to our own life. That we can protect the ones we love from the implosion of our own character. But the tragedy of Saul's life is that his sin and the effects of his sin are not just personal because Saul is a father and he's a king. And Saul's sin and his rebellion against God brings down everyone around him. And the force of Saul's downfall, the suction of his descent, destroys his sons, his army, and his kingdom. 
That's what happens when the king fails. Saul has watched his three sons being slaughtered around him. And now a rain of arrows darkens the sky. The archers have found the little group making their last stand on the mountainside, standing there in a heap of bodies. And Saul staggers as the arrows begin to penetrate his armor. And he looks down and his hand is covered with blood. And when he knows himself to be wounded, the last hope dies within him. Saul's great horror is that he will be captured by the Philistine enemies, that his weapons will be stripped from him, that he will be tortured and humiliated by those who have longed for his downfall. And we know in the ancient world, when kings were taken in battle, they were treated horribly. They would be ritually mutilated. Their eyes would be gouged out. Their thumbs and their big toes would be sliced off. Their genitals would be severed, and then they might be skinned alive or tied up in the marketplace to the jeers of the crowd or chained under the table of their conqueror to beg for scraps, ending their life like a dog. Saul is a proud man, and he cannot bear the thought of this kind of end. And he would rather die than endure that sort of shame. And he orders his armor bearer, his bodyguard, to draw his sword and run him through. But the poor man is too terrified to obey his king. And so Saul fixes his own sword in the ground and he unbuckles his armor, exposing his bare belly to the blade and he falls with his full weight on the metal points impaling himself on the battlefield by my count there are six suicides in the bible Saul and his armor bearer Samson Abimelech Ahithophel and Judas And of course, we can never say that suicide puts someone outside the range of the grace of God. That's not ours to judge. But in the Bible, it's certainly never seen as a heroic act or a pious choice. Suicide is always the tragic end of a troubled person. And we grieve at human frailty. The Swiss theologian, Karl Barth said about suicide, it's not for a man himself to decide whether his existence is a success or a failure, whether it is tolerable or intolerable, whether its continuation is possible or impossible, far less whether it is worthwhile or mean and worthless. That is not for human beings to decide. The creator, the giver and Lord of life decides all these things and no one else. But the tragedy of Saul is he has become someone who is unable 
to wait on the will of God. The tragedy of Saul's character is he has been a man determined to be the master of his own fate. He's impatient of waiting on God. He must seize control of his destiny on his own terms. Saul was a man who worshipped his own will. And in the end, it is Saul's own will that destroyed him. Samuel's prophecy of the previous night has been fulfilled. Saul and his sons and the whole army have been destroyed in battle and the kingdom collapses. Towns and cities empty. The roads are choked with refugees pushing their belongings in front of them. And the Philistines move into these empty cities and now they occupy a great swath stretching east to west across Israel. They straddle the great highway that goes up from Egypt to Damascus and to Babylon. They've cut Israel in two. The kingdom of Saul is over. And the next day on the battlefield, the Philistines return to strip the corpses of any valuables. And as they turn the bodies over, they discover Saul and his sons. They cut off Saul's head, this man who had stood head and shoulders above everyone else. They take off his armor and they send messengers back to the five cities of Philistia to proclaim the good news of the victory to the roaring crowds. And Saul's army is brought back and it's placed in the temple of the Ashtoreths as a trophy, a sign that the Philistine gods have crushed the God of Israel. And Saul's naked, headless body is fastened to the wall of Beth Shan to be eaten by birds, to rot under the hot sun, to be spat upon by anyone who walks by. But that's not quite the end of Saul's story. His humiliation, his desecration, his failure is not quite the end of 1 Samuel. Because there is one town in Israel that has not forgotten what Saul did for them. Jabesh Gilead. And 40 years earlier, at the very beginning of Saul's reign, this town, you may remember, across the Jordan, had been besieged by Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And they were in a desperate situation, and this cruel king had promised, if you surrender yourself, instead of killing you, I will gouge out your right eyes. But I will give you seven days to seek for help. Help he was sure would not come. And then the freshly anointed King Saul, who had been plowing his ground, heard the news and the spirit of the Lord had mushed, had rushed mightily upon him. And Saul had raised an army and marched through the night 
to raise the siege and deliver the city. Forty years ago. And the children of that siege are now men. And they have not forgotten when Saul had been God's savior for them. And these men show loyalty when there's nothing to gain and everything to lose. These men of valor cross the Jordan River in the darkness They slip into occupied territory and right under the noses of the Philistines, they take the bodies of Saul and his three sons down from the wall. They go back to Gilead. They burn the rotting flesh off the bones and they bury them under a tamarisk tree, the very kind of tree that Saul had once sat under with his spear in happier days. Saul is a tragic figure. And yet, 1 Samuel leaves us with the final picture, not of Saul at his worst and his lowest, but Saul at his best. Saul, young, strong, full of the spirit, head and shoulders above his fellows, acting like God's true king. There was so much tragedy in the life of Saul because it didn't have to be this way. And the genius of the story of 1 Samuel is that it paints human character and personality in all of its complexity. You know, in the old days of the Westerns, back in the 1950s, because of black and white television, to make things really clear, the good guys would always wear the white hats, and they'd always be facing right on the screen, and the bad guys would wear the black hats, and they'd be facing left on the screen, just to make it very clear to everyone who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But real life is not that way, and 1 Samuel recognizes how complex things really are. David, we'll find out, is not completely good through and through. And Saul is not evil right down to the bone. The tragedy of Saul's life is that it didn't have to end this way. He could have made different choices. He could have overcome his worst instincts. He could have sought the Lord with his whole heart. He could have conquered his self-will and his destructive tendencies. Saul could have made these choices. Saul did not make those choices. And so his life ends in tragedy, in barrenness, and in defeat. 
And so the book of First Samuel ends. And we might wonder if Hannah's hope has failed. The Hannah who sung with such trust in God, with such prophetic words seemingly in chapter 2. She had sung of a God who brings down the proud and exalts the lowly. A God who would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But now in 1 Samuel 31, the end of the road, Saul is dead. Saul's sons are slain. His army is destroyed. His kingdom is lost. The people are refugees and the enemy is dancing and celebrating the defeat of Israel's God. And then the book ends. 1 Samuel is the story of the failure of human leadership. The people had demanded a king from God, a king just like the nations around them, a king who would be charismatic, a king who would be strong, a king who would be a focus of unity, a king who would save them from their enemies, especially the Philistines. And they had chosen a man who was head and shoulders above the rest, the pinnacle of human strength. And Saul had failed them. Saul was a man who had begun so meekly, hiding among the baggage, having to be dragged to the throne. And Saul had fallen in love with his own ego, his own status, his own power, his own authority. And instead of being a faithful shepherd to his people, he had become obsessed with what he imagined was a threat to his power. And in the end, Saul had proved utterly unable to save his people from what they were most afraid of. And Saul's personal failure became a national tragedy. 1 Samuel and 1 Samuel 31 are a sobering reminder. This week above all other weeks of the foolishness of putting our hope in political leaders. And again and again, the people of God make the mistake of latching their hopes onto charismatic personalities who project power and offer the promise of strength and control, and even worse, we make the mistake, the blasphemous mistake of attaching the future of the kingdom of God to sinful, frail political leaders and political parties. And this is what we end up with. It's the end of Saul's story. But it is not the end of God's story.
Saul may be dead. The battleground may be soaked in blood and covered in corpses. People's belongings may be littering the side of the road. But the kingdom of God marches on. And even in in defeat and despair and darkness, the kingdom of God gathers strength. And we should know this if we have paid attention to this book. Because there was a horrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines very early in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 5 at the battle of Aphek, a whole generation ago. And Israel had been destroyed in battle. And the ark of God in which they trusted had been captured and brought into the land of the Philistines. And set before Dagon in his temple as a trophy of the defeat of Yahweh. There the presence of God had sat alone. And God had defeated his rivals. And he had caused them to bow down before him. As a sign that the kingdom of God does not depend on human strength. And it does not depend on people who stand head and shoulders above the rest of us. When the strength of man fails, when all our hopes have been crushed, God is on the move. The king, the people wanted, has failed them. He has snapped like a broken reed and he's brought them all into disaster. But there is another king in this book that God has chosen. And God's true anointed, the king that God wants, the man after God's own heart in Israel's darkest hour is about to step Onto the throne. The division between 1st and 2nd Samuel is really quite artificial. It's one book. It was written as one book. Only divided into two because it could not fit onto a single scroll. And as we come to the end of this scroll, we must remember that God has yet another scroll in his story. Another scroll still to be opened. Another chapter still to be read. The question for us today is, are our eyes on God's anointed? Are we aware of what God is doing offstage what so many consider to be the main sphere of history? Or have we made the mistake, the fatal mistake, of harnessing our hopes onto human leaders? The kingdom of God is not held in the hand of any human leader, any mere human being. 
anyone who possesses the fatal character flaw that might destroy us all. The kingdom of God is held in the hands of King Jesus. The seven stars are in his palm. This is a king who has no fatal character flaw. A king whose heart will never rise in impatient self-will against God. Someone who is completely surrendered to the will of God. A king who does not destroy himself out of fear of disgrace and shame, but someone who in love for his people sets his face like flint and goes to the mountain of Golgotha. And he endures shame and suffering and death for the sake of his people. And what we thought was terrible defeat in battle, when the forces of darkness conquered, when the Nazarene was tortured and spat upon, when he was impaled naked before the taunts of his enemies, this turns out to be the greatest victory of God. And in the darkness, God is moving. And the blackness of the crucifixion is about to be turned into the light of the resurrection. And that is where our hope must lie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in repentance by putting our faith in other human beings, even in ourselves. And as we find again and again, they fail us, they disappoint us, they even destroy us. Lord, forgive our idolatry. Forgive the blasphemous thought that somehow you need certain people to be in power and to be in control for your kingdom to come. God, you are a king who conquers in weakness. And what we think of as foolishness is the wisdom of God. The defeat of the cross turns out to be the victory of Christ over sin and Satan and death. O oh Lord, forgive us and draw forth single-eyed faith in our hearts to look to your Son and to your Son alone for our salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.